From the American Academy of Dermatology, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Ben Stoff, Editor-in-Chief. Thanks for tuning in. From their childhood dreams to the most pivotal moments of their careers, the stories of dermatology's most influential leaders will be revealed through a new series of Dialogues in Dermatology podcasts, Titans of Dermatology. Join us as we explore the personal characteristics, emotions, and messages from dermatologists who have made indelible impacts on the field. Everyone, thank you for joining us today. This is Julia Baltz for Dialogues of Dermatology. It is my absolute pleasure to sit down today to speak with June Robinson. June Robinson is the true definition of a titan within our field. Currently, she's Professor Emeritus at the Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine. She completed her dermatology residency at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, after which she went on to become the first female fellowship-trained Mohs surgeon training at New York University Skin and Cancer Clinic. After completing her dermatology residency at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, Dr. Robinson went on to be the first woman trained in Mohs surgery, completing her fellowship at New York University Skin and Cancer Clinic. Dr. Robinson had a number of other firsts. She was the first woman president of the American Society for Dermatologic Surgery. She was the first woman president of the Illinois Division of the American Cancer Society. And she was the first woman secretary and treasurer of the American Academy of Dermatology. Additionally, she was the first woman editor of the Archives of Dermatology, what we know now as the Journal of American Medical Association Dermatology, Jamaderm. And not only that, in 2008, Dr. Robinson received the Frederick E. Mose Award, which is the highest honor that one can achieve within the College of Mose Surgery. So not only was she the first woman to be trained in Mose Surgery with a formal fellowship, she also was the first woman to win this illustrious award and really paved the way for young women Mose surgeons like myself. Not only that, Dr. Robinson has saved likely countless lives within dermatology, not only through her clinic, but also through her initiatives in melanoma detection and awareness, in tanning beds, regulation. So really, I could go on and this whole interview could just be me naming her accolades, but we're so thrilled to have you here, Dr. Robinson, today. So welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. It's my great pleasure to have the opportunity to visit with you today. Thank you. So a little bit about this podcast, you know, in addition to hearing about your career, we also really like to take a minute to get to know you as the person, you know, we know June Robinson based on the articles we read and the accolades, but we're curious about who you are, you know, who is June Robinson at home? So if you don't mind taking just a few moments and telling us a little bit about where you grew up and what brought you to a path in medicine. Um, I grew up as the older child. I have the older child syndrome. For those of you who are older children, you'll recognize it. <laughs> I'm the older child of two siblings. My sister is six years younger than I am. The family lived in a suburb of Philadelphia. And quite frankly, my mother got me out of the house in first grade because she needed to get rid of me because she needed to devote her time to my sister. Mm. So she put me out into the world of getting lessons. So I got private violin lessons starting from the first grade because she wanted to teach me, I think, to count, basically, was one of the issues. And it was violin lessons with the metronome and the overbearing Germanic teacher and getting the bow placed correctly onto the strings. And you will see that this is the formative period of learning how to take instruction mm. and how to try to excel and 
please the parents who were paying for all of this. Mm-hmm. The other thing that this did for me is I'm not a great sports person. I'm kind of klutzy when it gets to physical activities. <laughs> and in my era, women did not play a lot of sports. You know, mm-hmm. our big thing was playing half court basketball, all right, which is not full court basketball. Right. Women in my era were not pushed into sports is what it amounts to. So this gave me a team. I had a team that was an orchestra. By the time I was in upper elementary school, fifth and sixth grade, we began to have a perfectly awful orchestra, but it was something we could do together. And so mm-hmm. we learned how to relate to one another. And over time, I began to to get better at this with a lot of practice, huge mm-hmm. amounts of practice, and just keep doing it. And this is the path that sets me on a path to medicine and a career of just keep doing it, just keep trying, just putting one foot in front of the other. All right. So by the time I'm in high school, I'm pretty good. I'm the concert mistress. That's the first chair in the orchestra that reports to the conductor who is the head of the music program at the at the high school. It makes me the leader of the orchestra. And it helps me to build the concept of the fact that as a team, as the orchestra, we sound much better than any one individual of us does. Now, the right. other thing it did for me was it gave me a true appreciation and great love for what is the classical music traditions, Bach, mm-hmm. Mozart, Beethoven. All right. That's the kinds of things that we were playing once I got beyond Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. <laughs> Now, the other part of this in the formative years that maybe some of your more senior listeners can understand is Sputnik went up. Mm-hmm. And when Sputnik went up, we who were in school were all encouraged to go into the sciences because we had to catch up with the Soviet Union. Wow. So we had our world focused and turned. We also practiced diving underneath of our desks to protect us from the atom bombs that were coming. I still don't understand why they thought diving under desk was going to do anything for us, but we did it. All right. <laughs> so we grew up in that era. And yeah. the other thing that they did for us at about seventh or eighth grade was they gave us these Minnesota personality tests. Have you ever taken one of these things? I don't think I have. Okay. This is also an era thing. All right. So they were supposed to be identifying what our natural tendencies tended towards. All right. Mm. And and then our guidance counselors would help us to figure out where we should go with our lives. Mm. So I came up as being wanting to help others. It was a category of the Minnesota personality test. Lord knows what the rest of them were. I have no idea anymore. (laughs) So then you would go to your guidance counselor in about eighth grade and you'd sit down and the guidance counselor, who was a woman, laid out the path that you should follow based on this test. And it was identified that I should either become a teacher or a nurse. Now, I and then that was the standard script for women in that era. Correct. Yep. So I take this home and I tell my father this. Remember, I'm the oldest daughter. Right. I tell my father this. <laughs> my father gets irate at this piece of information. <laughs> and he proceeds to tell me, you can be anything you want to be. Wow. My mother chimes in. She says something to the effect, and I don't really remember her words exactly, but it was something to the effect of you work hard, you do good in school, and we will support you wherever you want to go. Wow. That opened the door. 
And they were good for their word. They supported me wherever I wanted to go. Wow. That is incredible. And it's not often that men would have given that much freedom to a daughter. But I, he only had two daughters. He was a World War II vet. so <laughs> Right. I think that is unique that he looked at his daughter and said, you can be exactly what you want to be. You don't have to fit within this societal prescription that you've been given. That's very impressive. Now, what drew you to a career in dermatology in specific once you had gone into medical school? Our lives are made up of stories is the way I phrase it. That story will resonate with some of your listeners in a positive way. And others will say, gee, I wish I had had that experience. All right. So here's the story. We were not PGY1s. We were interns. Okay. Just, just get this, get the language right. We were on call every other night because that was the dues you paid. And when you right. paid those dues, the night that you were on call, you never slept. You basically didn't need to have a bed because you never slept. And by the way, the place that I was doing my internship had no women's on call rooms. So we had to find a vacant patient room if we wanted to lie down because there were only rooms for the men and you could go in with the men, but I was not about to go in with the men. So, (laughs) you know, I spent a lot of time lying down in gurneys in the hallways and those kinds of things, but we didn't really sleep because we were on call. I mean, we were admitting all night long. It it was a busy hospital. It was great experience. So there was two of us, a man and I were the two on call that night for the ICU. We didn't really have a, a... a CCU, we had an ICU. Okay, we had medical ICU and a surgical ICU, and that was it. All right, and, and we had together probably resuscitated three people that night with the hard work of resuscitation of pounding on chests and breathing on them. All right, different era, different era. Okay, <laughs> we were exhausted, and we were sitting there. We looked at each other, and he said to me, "You know, it's not worth going back to the own call quarters because I'm going to be back here again in 15 minutes." So right. we started to talk to each other. And being somewhat obsessive compulsive, the two of us began to list all of the careers within medicine that we would consider mm-hmm. and eliminated them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we ended up, both of us, with dermatology, and we both ended up matching into dermatology residencies. Wow. So that was it. You figured it out that night. That night. And it was a combination of both the fatigue of being on call and also the realization that we were really not helping people. Mm. Resuscitating that many people and having so many of them die was not rewarding. And in dermatology, you had the opportunity to help people have a better quality of life and follow them throughout their lives. At that time, that's what we did. And it, it was good to be able to have the opportunity to have a range of ages. So you weren't only dealing with the elderly who were looking at you from the other side of a white sheet and practically the same color as the sheet. All right. So so that was why we both picked it. He took a different path. He went into private practice. I went into academics, but you know, it it is telling for the maturation of, of what we go through in our first year out of medical school is to help set the tone of what we want to do. Absolutely. So along those lines, I know you've talked before about sort of your light bulb moments in your career and in dermatology. What are those moments where you feel like things came together and you came up with those innovations that really did help to improve people's lives? I have been fortunate to be in the right place at the right time 
and have something spark me. I can't tell you why this happens to me, but it happens to me. So there's three opportunities that I've had, and each one of them is spaced out over a decade, and each one of them takes about a decade, if not two decades, to come to maturation. Mm. One must understand that when one is trying to improve areas in clinical care, nothing happens overnight. It has mm. to build, it has to be accepted by others, it has to be proved to be effective and cost effective too, and then it takes grip within the specialty and within medicine. So it's a very long process. The mm. first one came when I was presenting some of my research at the Society for Investigative Dermatology and an investigative PhD presented a slide. Cell culture of keratinocytes stained with anti-keratin staining by immunofluorescence. And in front of me on the screen was this beautiful, long appendage sticking out from this cell, highlighted by this thin layer of green. And I went, wow, if I could do that on frozen sections for most patients who were having squamous cell carcinoma, it would make it so much easier to be able to track the squamous cell carcinoma along peripheral nerves to figure out whether or not we had keratinocytes hiding out within inflammatory cells. Because those of us who've looked at these frozen sections know it's both art and science to make these determinations. So then I proceeded to stalk T.T. Sun, hanging out wherever he was lecturing to try to give him my brilliant idea. Because mm -hmm. there's no point in having a brilliant idea if you don't follow through with it. <laughs> Gotta share it, yeah. <laughs> and T.T. Sun was very generous. He provided me with the anti-keratin materials. I went back to Northwestern. I got internal support from the department. I got internal support from the university and proceeded to work extraordinarily hard developing both immunofluorescence and immunoproxidase staining for frozen sections on tumors, which were very difficult to discern on simply either toluidine blue, which is what I mostly used, or HNA. HNA is, of course, for the, the squamous cell carcinomas, but we use tall blue for basal cell carcinomas. So I'm very proud of my work, okay? I'm very excited to share this with the college. I gear myself up. I make this presentation to the college. By the way, I'm the only woman speaker at this point in time in the college. And I stand up and I'm full of enthusiasm for what this is going to do to help our patients and make us better doctors. Mm -hmm. I get no questions and it lands like a dud. <laughs> Absolutely nobody cares. Nobody cares. So I say, okay, nobody cares. That was an initial presentation to show them that it worked. Now mm -hmm. I have to do the clinical studies to show what it can do when it works. So I go back mm -hmm. five years later and I present fact that basically I'm saving tissue because I'm not having to go back for additional stages. Right. And Fred Mose stands up in the audience and he says, I don't know why you're fooling around with all this stuff. You could just take another layer. And he sits down. <laughs> now, not only have I did a, given a dud presentation, but Fred Mose has now told me that my work is useless. <laughs> It doesn't stop me because remember, I spent years learning to play the violin. Right? Exactly. You're an I, oldest child. You play the violin. I the violin. I published the work. All right. The important Amazing. thing here is, and, and this is something I've told any number of my colleagues and younger associates, 
You have to plant the flag that shows you did it. Mm. Others will find your work and reproduce it and find out that you were right or they'll prove you wrong, but you must publish. Otherwise, mm. you're only talking to yourself. And in the case of the Moses College, I was talking to a bunch of people who didn't care to hear what I was saying. <laughs> By the way, the refrain at that time amongst all of the college members was take another layer. That was right. what was the practice. If you if it was hard to read the frozen sections, you just took another layer. Right. For those of you who are not most surgeons, the taking of another layer defeats the purpose of being tissue sparing. Right. And in some instances, because another layer is either six millimeters or a centimeter, depending who's taking it, and mm -hmm. that's highly variable. I'm sure you'll agree with me, Julia. Absolutely. Some people claim they take three millimeters. I don't think that's real, uh, but sometimes I never took three millimeters. I took between five and six millimeters as another layer. Mm -hmm. But in some cases, that other layer is going to sacrifice an important structure, like an eyelid, the corner of a mouth. And you really want to be able to have tissue sparing techniques. That's just what it means. So I was fortunate Absolutely. to have many members of the college who were significantly younger than the people that were sitting in my audience the first time, begin to pick this up, take it on. And quite frankly, we could not charge for this because there was no code to charge for this. We were paying for this out of our pockets. And right. begin to practice this. And over the last several decades, it has become a technique that has been accepted by many members of the college. Wow, that's amazing. I thought you'd enjoy the comments from from some of the people. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's incredible. And, you know, I think it's really important for our audience to hear about these long processes, right? We are in a moment in our culture where people want things now and they don't want to put in that work and to hear that, right, you're going to get knocked down a number of times in your career. But it is about, like you said, planting that flag, letting people know you did it, putting in the time. And part of the reason why I have been able to carry on for decades in the kinds of research that I've done is I've had a passion project, right? mm. something that took me out of myself, gave back to the specialty and gave back to the patients. My passion project has been skin cancer control. That's prevention and early detection. Mm -hmm. It was fueled by the kind of work that I was doing with my team we were taking care of tumors that were at least two centimeters in diameter. This was the early days of Mohs surgery in the area. So when you first go into an area and it hasn't been widely practiced, one is taking care of recurrent tumors and large primary tumors. So, mm -hmm. you, you know, when you're taking care of a two centimeter lesion at the time of presentation, you're looking at something like a six centimeter deficit. And this is somewhat hard possibly for many people to understand, but that's just the way it was. Fortunately, mm -hmm. medical care has improved over time, and now we see far fewer tumors of that size. Mm, absolutely. Tell us a little bit about your uh, initiatives on partner self-skin exams and how you got into indoor tanning legislation. Well, the indoor tanning legislation is probably the more interesting story because it was one of those serendipitous moments. I'm walking home from my practice offices in Chicago, downtown Chicago, all right? 
I'm walking up, for those of you who have been in Chicago, I'm walking up Michigan Avenue. I'm coming to the Water Tower Place, which is the huge shopping mall at that time with plenty of traffic in and out. And there's this gorgeous young woman standing there and she's handing out flyers. So naturally, I'm going to take one. I mean, you know, what is it? I'll take it. And I look at it and it's a coupon for 10 free indoor tanning sessions. And I look at it and I say to myself, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. This puts people at enormous risk. Yeah. Why would we ever want this to be happening to people? All right. So right. I take this coupon home. And by the way, I kept the coupon. It's a, it's, it's one of my <laughs> scrapbook items. <laughs> it's a tatty little piece of paper, but it was a significant piece of paper. At that exactly time, right. I also was chair of the prevention committee of the American Cancer Society, Illinois Division. Now, uh -huh. understand when one works within these kinds of organizations, it's all voluntary. But what I mm -hmm. gained from contributing my time and talent to that organization was the ability to cut across disciplines. So mm -hmm. the prevention committee of the American Cancer Society has epidemiologists, people who've done smoking cessation, behavioral scientists, all right? I take my tatty little piece of paper into them and I say, are you all aware of this? And there, nobody's aware of this. Now, this is a new research area. This gets everybody going, all right? We want to find out how widespread this is, who's doing this, and sort of what's going on. Now, here's another one of my famous statements. No money, no mission, okay? We got a mission here. The Prevention Committee has a mission. We want to find out the scope of this carcinogenic practice within the state of Illinois. We are the American Cancer Society, Illinois Division. Take it up the line through the... If you're a chair, you can take it up to the vice presidents. The vice presidents take it up to the president. And we get granted money to perform a statewide survey. Not only do we get granted the money to do it, but the American Cancer Society, who's been serving on smoking cessation and everything else in the world, has all of the survey mechanisms in place. Right. So I learn how to construct a population-based survey. I go out to the place it was done on the telephone. I go out to the telephone bank in Chicago area. All right. Chicago is a large city. Okay. I go out to the telephone bank and I sit there and I listen to them as they're doing the surveys. I am learning. I'm being a sponge at this point. All right. This is my sponge moment. I didn't know how to do all this stuff. Yeah. We came back. We found out that the population that was doing this was teens. Okay. Widespread throughout the state of Illinois. Publish it. Publish it. Okay. We're the first people. We're the first people to do a statewide survey. To have a population-based survey is like, woo, this is wonderful. Everybody gets excited about this. And then the American Cancer Society Illinois Division takes on a campaign strategy to cease indoor tanning and puts together a program and disseminates it throughout the state of Illinois in high schools. We have wow. posters in the locker rooms of the teen boys and girls. We talk to coaches. I'm learning how to roll out a prevention program because the American Cancer Society has been doing this for smoking cessation. Yeah. I'm piggybacking on this, all right? Now, 
I'm moving up the chairs because if you have an idea, it's a good idea. You demonstrate the ability to work with others. You get your your hands around an important issue. You rise through the chairs. I become president of the American Cancer Society, Illinois Division, first woman president. And what do I do with this? I have an agenda. All right. I have when you're a president, you get to pick your presidential topic, whatever it is. I pick mammograms, right? Because we've got to detect breast cancer amongst people who don't have access. This is a different time and a place. We have a mobile mammography unit goes into the Hispanic area where they don't speak any English and does mammograms on those women who otherwise would not be doing this. And if I'm going to do something for the women, I'm going to do something for the men. So we have a prostate screening initiative carried through the African-American faith-based communities, because that's the only way you can outreach to those. I am now learning once again, how to get to populations that we as medical professionals usually don't see because they don't come for care. Right. Right. These are all important learning steps, which then eventually I have the opportunity to bring into dermatology because now I'm president of the ASDS. Mm -hmm. When we take forward an initiative in the House of Medicine, the AMA annual meeting. Mike Franzblau is our representative and he carries forward an initiative which gains support and passes as a resolution to prohibit the transportation of indoor tanning booths across state lines. It passes, but it does nothing. Absolutely nothing. All right. Because nobody cares about a resolution within the AMA. I mean, we, we care as physicians, but it doesn't affect any rules and regulations at a state level. So now I'm Mm -hmm. I'm working within the academy. I'm probably assistant secretary treasurer at this time, but I'm not exactly sure. And Mm -hmm. we have a meeting with the FDA, four or five of us who are very interested in this particular problem, go to the FDA. We want to know what we can do. What can the FDA do for us? And the FDA Mm -hmm. tells us at that point in time, very politely, they're government officials. But we're representing the American Academy of Dermatology, so we get in the door, all right? Right, right. Tells us that really they can't regulate this. They can't stop tanning parlors. They can't shut them down. They couldn't stop cigarettes either. It has to be done at the state level. And they advise us that we, if we're going to do this at the state level, we shouldn't try to shut it down completely because we won't be able to get it through the state legislatures because we would cut off small businesses that their voters need money to go forward. We have the kernel of an idea of how to go. Plus, we already know from my work in the population-based study of Illinois that the people who are indoor tanning are teens, are teens to 20s. But by the time you get to 30 to 40, the indoor tanning rate started to decline at that point. So we have the kernel of an idea, which is provided to this team of five of us plus our lobbyists who who went with us and our Washington office people. And we go back to the academy and we huddle. And I will say that this is my idea. The others can say that it was their idea. I don't really care whose idea it was. But I look around the room and I say, you know, we have advocacy groups in every state. We're a national organization. And this is what I call a white hat issue. It would balance the early detection that we do in the month of May when we set up these opportunities to screen people for skin cancer. And it would be a perfect balance and it needs to be taken 
to the advisory board because they are the ones who represent those states. It's not at our level of the running of the academy. If we're going to get people on board who are going to do this work, it has to be a state initiative. The advisory board took it on and has worked diligently for 20 plus years to make it happen in multiple states across our country. And I had the privilege 20 years almost to the day after we did the survey in the state of Illinois to go before the appropriate council of the city of Chicago and represent the American Cancer Society to put forward the legislation that limited access to indoor tanning for teens. And the important fact on this one is it got through not because I was there or because the representative of the academy was there, but it got there because of women who had suffered and sustained skin cancers testifying about what it had done to their lives. And that heartbreaking story moved the members of the council to 100% support limitation. I bring this to everybody's attention because it, it represents how the organization abilities of the national organization filters to the state levels and helps move things forward. That's incredible. I mean, you think about this woman giving the the flyer to the wrong person <laughs> on the right day and how, like you said, these organizational ties, this is volunteer. I mean, this is all something you're doing on your own time, in addition to your clinics, in addition to your day-to-day patient care. It's really quite inspiring and exceptional. But we have the stories of hundreds of volunteers who are dermatologists who carry this initiative at the state level, who found those women, largely women, who did indoor tanning and suffered the consequences and took those ladies forward to testify. And it's hard for these people because they got facial scars, they break down in tears. It's tough going for those those people who have suffered from indoor tanning. And we're not done yet. I mean, we have not moved all of the states. I can say that the state of Illinois has moved forward, but I could name you the people who have carried this initiative on behalf of the Academy. And we've been at this for a decade, some of these people. Unbelievable. Well, this is really inspiring, I think, for our listeners to continue to take up this mantle and take up this fight. It's really impressive to know how it started and, and where it started. Um, so all of us, thank you for that, Dr. Robinson. In our few moments left, I'm wondering if you just have any other pearls about your career or any words of wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners. Dermatologists have historically been a relatively small group. We've been enormously effective for our size because we've had dedicated leadership and dedicated members. I believe we need to have issues beyond our own monetary reimbursement that is too self-serving for the profession. And we need to have ways in which we demonstrate how much we care for our patients and how much we care for the dermatologic health of our population. And I would caution us to continue to find areas in which we can do good for the population. It's going to be very hard. I well recognize that reimbursement issues are central to the membership. 
However, you're going to lose votes and you're going to lose the power of your voice if that's all you talk about. That is such good advice. Remembering, right, why we are all here, what is our mission, and how do we parlay that into patient care on a national level? And and we've had opportunities that have been sort of amazing for our specialty. But remember, as all of us know, uh, skin cancer was generally considered to be not important. When I started out, it was epitheliomas and not cancers. Uh, We've made a lot of strides within skin cancer. However, there are other areas that require as much devotion as I have paid to skin cancer. And I'm pleased to see that happening. I think that other groups have focused around other diseases. And this kind of experience that I've just shared with you about cross-fertilization across disciplines so that we can learn and improve and keep ourselves from being siloed because we're an outpatient group of doctors poorly funded in the research initiative usually. So we have to go to others to learn is what it amounts to for whatever we do. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Robinson. I know our listeners really enjoy hearing your stories today and are feeling inspired. I know I am. Again, for Dialogues in Dermatology, this is Julia Baltz speaking today with Dr. June Robinson. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. For more dialogues, subscribe to us through the website of the American Academy of Dermatology, then link your subscription through your favorite podcast app. Remember, the subscription is free for residents. New podcasts are released each week in addition to free special bonus episodes. You can also listen to dialogues online through the AAD website. Thanks again for listening.